Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. Pinchas, the crown all can wear. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord God of the spirits of all flesh appoint a man over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses was in sight of the angel of death. Miriam had died, so had Aaron. And God had told Moses, You too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. So he knew he wasn't fated to live long enough to cross the Jordan and enter the land. Who would then be his successor? Did he have no thoughts on the matter? With profound attentiveness, the sages noted the immediately previous passage, the story of the daughters of Tzlovchod, who claimed their rights of inheritance in the land despite the fact that inheritance passed through the male line and their father had left no sons. Moses brought their request to God, who answered that it was to be granted. Against this background, the Midrash interprets Moses' thoughts as he brings his own request to God that a successor be appointed. What was Moses' reason, says the Midrash, for making this request after declaring the order of inheritance? Just this, that when the daughters of Tzlovchad inherited from their father, Moses reasoned, the time is right for me to make my own request. If daughters inherit, it's surely right that my sons should inherit my glory. However, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him that your sons sat idly by and didn't study the Torah. Joshua served you faithfully and showed you great honor. He rose early in the morning and remained late at night at your house of assembly. He used to arrange the benches and spread the mats. Seeing that he has served you with all his might, he is worthy to lead Israel, for he shall not lose his reward. This is the unspoken drama of the chapter. Not only was Moses fated not to enter the land, he was also destined to see his sons overlooked in the search for a successor. That was his second personal tragedy. But it's precisely here that we find for the first time one of Judaism's most powerful propositions. Biblical Israel had its dynasties. Both priesthood and in a later age kingship were handed down from father to son. Yet there is a staunchly egalitarian strand in Judaism from the outset. Ironically, it's given one of the most powerful expressions in the mouth of the rebel Korach. All the congregation are holy, and the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you set yourself above the congregation? But it wasn't only Karach who gave voice to such a sentiment. We hear it in the words of Moses himself when he said to Joshua, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. It is implicit in the great holiness command. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is not a call to priests or prophets, a sacred elite, but to an entire people. There is within Judaism a profound egalitarian instinct. The concept of a nation of individuals standing with equal dignity in the presence of God. 
Korach was wrong, less in what he said than in why he said it. He was a demagogue. He was a populist, as we call them nowadays, attempting to seize power. But he tapped into a deep reservoir of popular feeling and religious principle. Jews have never been easy to lead because each feels that we are called on to be a leader. What Korach forgot is that to be a leader, it is also necessary to be a follower. Leadership presupposes discipleship. That is what Joshua knew, and that's what led him to be chosen as Moses' successor. This tradition is summed up in the famous Maimonidean ruling. With three crowns was Israel crowned, with the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. The crown of priesthood was bestowed on Aaron and his descendants, the crown of kingship on David and his successors, but the crown of Torah is for all Israel. Whoever wishes, let them come and take it. And do not suppose that the other two crowns are greater than that of Torah. The crown of Torah is greater than the others. This had immense social and political consequences. Throughout most of the biblical era, all three crowns were in operation. In addition to prophets, Israel had kings and an active priesthood serving in the temple. The dynastic principle, leadership passing from father to son, still dominated two of the three roles. But with the destruction of the second temple, kingship and a functioning priesthood ceased. Leadership passed to the sages who saw themselves as heirs to the prophets. We see this in the famous one-sentence summary of Jewish history with which Pirkei Avot begins. Moses received the Torah from Sinai and handed it to Joshua, who handed it to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets to the men of the great assembly. The rabbis saw themselves as heirs to the prophets rather than to the priests. In biblical Israel... The priests were the primary guardians and teachers of Torah. So why did the rabbis not see themselves as heirs to Aaron and the Kohanim? The answer may be this. Priesthood was a dynasty. It passed from father to son. Prophetic leadership, by contrast, could never be predicted in advance, and the proof was Moses. The very fact that his children didn't succeed him as leaders of the people may have been an acute distress to him, but it was a deep consolation to everyone else. It meant that anyone, by discipleship and dedication, could aspire to rabbinic leadership in the crown of Torah. Hence we find in the sources a paradox. On the one hand, the Torah describes itself as an inheritance. Moses commanded us the Torah as an inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. But on the other hand, the sages were insistent that the Torah is not an inheritance. Rabbi Yossi said, prepare yourself to learn Torah because it is not given to you as a Yerusha, as an inheritance. The simplest resolution of the contradiction is that there are two kinds of inheritance. Biblical Hebrew contains two different words for what we receive as a legacy, Yerusha, Morasha, and Nachala. Nachala is related to the word Nachala River. It signifies something passed down automatically across the generations as river water flows downstream. You don't need to do anything, it just does it. Yerusha, however, comes from the root yarash, which means to take possession. It refers to something which you have legitimate title to, but you need to do a positive action to acquire. 
A hereditary title, such as being a duke or an earl, is passed from father to son. So too is a family business. The difference is the first needs no effort on the part of the heir. You don't need to work at being an earl or a duke. But the second requires hard work if the family business is to continue to be worth something. Torah is like a business, not like a title. It has to be earned if it is to be sustained. The sages themselves put it more beautifully. Moses commanded us a Torah as a morashakilat Yaakov, as an inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. Said the sages, don't read it morasha, an inheritance, but moorasa, betrothed. By a simple change in pronunciation, turning a shin into a sin, an inheritance into a betrothal, the rabbi signaled that yes, there is an inheritance relationship between Torah and the Jew, but the former has to be loved if it is to be earned. You have to love Torah if you are to inherit it. The sages were fully aware of the social implications of Rabbi Yossi's dictum that the Torah is not given to you as an inheritance. It meant that literacy and learning must never become the preserve of an elite. The sages were constantly on their guard against exclusivist attitudes to Torah. Equality is never preserved without vigilance. And there were contrary tendencies. We see this in one of the debates between the schools of Hillel and Shammai. Raise up many disciples. The school of Shammai says a person is to teach only one who is wise, humble, of good stock, and rich. But the school of Hillel says everyone is to be taught. For there were many transgressors in Israel who were attracted to the study of Torah, and from them sprang righteous, pious, and worthy men. So, said Hillel, teach Torah to everyone. Torah is each of our inheritance. You cannot predict who will achieve greatness. Therefore, Torah must be taught to all. And a later episode illustrates the virtue of teaching everyone. Once Rav came to a certain place where, though it decreed a fast for rain, no rain fell. Eventually, someone else stepped forward in front of Rav before the ark and prayed, who causes the wind to blow, and the wind blew. Then he prayed, who causes the rain to fall, and the rain fell. Rav asked him, what is your occupation? He replied, I'm a teacher of young children. I teach Torah to the children of the poor as well as to the children of the rich. From those who cannot afford it, I take no payment. Besides, I have a fish pond, and I offer fish to any boy who refuses to study so that he comes to study. It would be wrong to suppose that these attitudes prevailed in all places at all times. No nation achieves perfection. An aptitude for learning isn't equally distributed within any group. There's always a tendency for the most intelligent and scholarly to see themselves as more gifted than others and for the rich to attempt to purchase a better education for their children than the poor. Yet to an impressive, even remarkable degree, Jews were vigilant in ensuring that no one was excluded from education and that schools and teachers were paid for by public funds. By many centuries, indeed millennia, Jews were the first to democratize education. The crown of Torah was indeed open to all. Moses' tragedy was Israel's consolation. The Torah is their inheritance. The fact that his successor wasn't his son, but Joshua, his disciple, meant that one form of leadership 
indeed historically and spiritually the most important of the three crowns could be aspired to by everyone dignity is not a privilege of birth honor is not confined to those with the right parents in a world defined and created by terror everyone is a potential leader we can all earn the right to wear the crown shabbat shalom Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting www.rabbisax.org. This year, we also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant and Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org slash cc family edition.